0: Please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12. The most well-known presidential speech in all of American history is what? (laughs) Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, right? Everybody that I heard, that's what they were pointing out. And yes, that is by far the most well-known presidential speech. However, the most important speech that was ever given by an American president was George Washington's farewell address. You see, after serving two terms as president, George announced that he would be retiring from office and that he would not seek re-election. Well, why do I argue that that was the most important presidential speech? Well, think about it for a second. Before George Washington, when was the last time you can remember any world leader, any national authority having any farewell address? If you're anything like me, You can't think of any, and that's because kings and queens and czars and chieftains and Caesars and emperors, they all held office until they died. And George Washington did the unthinkable and he inaugurated a practice of the peaceful transfer of power. And in doing so, he set a precedent that every president after him would follow to only serve two terms in office, a practice that was continued and carried on until FDR broke it and ran for his third and then fourth terms. And then after he died, our country was like, hey, that's a bad idea. We should make the 22nd Amendment and require that presidents can only serve two terms moving forward. George Washington's farewell address really isn't that important because of what it said. Uh, He did say important things, and they were significant, I suppose. I don't even know if I fully agree with everything he was arguing for. But it's important because of the humility it displayed and the way he changed the course of history by limiting himself in authority. Now, we've gotten really used to the idea of leaders stepping down after their time at the top has concluded Thanks to the leadership of George Washington, almost every nation in the world now practices some form of term limits on their national leaders. But that was a foreign notion to the ancient world. That was a foreign notion until just a couple hundred years ago. Samuel had been the leader of the Israelites, and he had ruled them really well. He was a godly judge. In fact, he was the absolute best of all the judges. None of the other judges compared to him in terms of godliness or wisdom or his commitment to teaching the word of God. You didn't see Samson out there preaching on a circuit every single year. He led the nation well and led them not only in terms of judging them, but in terms of worship. But the people still demanded a king. Now today what we're going to do is listen to Samuel's farewell address. He's not going to go anywhere. He'll still be alive, and he'll still be around for a number of years. In fact, he's going to have a great deal of influence behind the scenes by anointing the next king of Israel. But he is stepping down now from office. He is stepping down from public leadership. Israel has just won a war against the Ammonites. They were led to victory by King Saul, and everyone is ecstatic. They are joyful. They are excited Well, now Samuel is going to bring some very much needed correction and rebuke. This is the humble farewell of a good ruler. Please follow along as I read aloud from 1 Samuel chapter 12. This is God's word, good seed, and may it find good soil today. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now behold... The king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whom have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hatzor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord, and he said, and, and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubba, Jerubbaal Jerubal "'and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, "'to deliver you out of the hand of your enemies "'on every side, and you lived in safety. "'And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, "'came against you, you said to me, "'No, but a king shall reign over us, "'when the Lord your God was your king. "'And now behold the king whom you have chosen, "'for whom you have asked.' Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore, stand still. And see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Lord, I ask that by the end of this sermon our hearts would be inflamed with the, with the words of Samuel that we would serve you faithfully with all our heart. Lord, I ask that in seeing the good news that is presented to us here, in seeing the good example of Samuel, in seeing the better example of your faithfulness, I ask, Lord, that we would be led to faithfulness ourselves. We pray that in the precious name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. As Samuel passes the baton here to Saul, he's going to leave Israel with some incredibly powerful words of correction that are going to lead to a seeming repentance in the people. In order to best grasp what's going on in here in the text, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage in three ways. First of all, we're going to look at Samuel's faithfulness. Then we're going to look at Israel's unfaithfulness. And then we're going to close out by looking at God's faithfulness. Let's begin by observing the faithfulness of Samuel. We're going to break it down here into four categories. Samuel's faithfulness with property in parenting, in preaching, and in prayer. Uh, The more I have gone through this book, the more I have studied it, the more I have grown to honor and respect this guy Samuel. I mean, I dramatically underestimated him prior to preaching through this book. Uh, Let's consider these four ways that he was a faithful leader in Israel. We begin Uh, with this farewell address by considering that he was faithful in property. Look how he starts this in a seemingly very confrontational way. He says, "'Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. Now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed.'" I don't know about you, I have never had anybody ever say, testify against me. He is putting a challenge before the people. What is the challenge? Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I deprauded? Or who am I oppressed? Or whom, from whose, whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. Once again, this challenge is put forward to them. And he puts out this standard. Have I ever taken any of your property? And their response is, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed witness is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Look, we agree with you. You haven't done anything here. You've never broken these rules. You have never oppressed us. Well, what's his point? This is actually a brilliant Swiss Army knife style of a declaration. It has many facets to it. First, he makes it clear that he has never done anything to deserve being replaced. He has never done anything that should cause them to say, hey, we need a recall election here. He has never stolen any, anything from anyone. He has never defrauded. But more than that, he is making it clear, I am not like my sons. Did you notice that? He points them out in the crowd. And, and, and my sons, they are with you. Do you remember why the people wanted a king? If you remember back to chapter 8, they had come to Samuel and they said, we want a king because you are old. Actually, the very first thing that they say to him is, you are old. (laughs) Way to get on his good side. Um, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. They looked at them and they said, they are men who ask for bribes. Notice that he says, I don't do that. Have I ever asked a bribe from anybody? He is comparing himself here to his sons and saying, I am not like them. I do not pervert justice. Samuel distinguishes himself from their activity, and he shows clearly, although they might be doing things that are inappropriate, I have always been above board. But the biggest thing that he is doing in contrasting with uh, with these people is he is contrasting with the future kings of Israel. Samuel described previously in painstaking detail, back in chapter 8, all of the terrible things that the king was going to do to them. Do you remember those various things that he said they were going to do? It all came down to one word, take. They are going to take from you. They are going to take everything from you. And included in that list are some of the things that he mentioned here. Interestingly, if you just rewind to last Sunday, you will remember what Saul had said. If you do not come and fight for us, I am going to take your oxen and I am going to kill them. The very first thing he begins with here is, have I ever taken your oxen? And Saul is with them. He's there in in the crowd. Can you imagine him looking at Saul at this moment? Have I ever taken your oxen? He is going to contrast himself here with every future king who is going to be taking from the people. He is making it clear that ministry for him has never been about personal gain. It is not about the money. He is not like a megachurch pastor who has their own private jet. He is a humble old man of humble means who has lived with whatever provisions the Lord has rightfully given him through the hard work of his hands. And he was faithful with possessions. Are you like Samuel in that way? Could you stand before everyone and say that you are just in all of your de- dealings? Look, we're in uh, tax season right now. Uh, everybody's getting their stuff in the mail. I encourage you to pursue your patriotic duty and pay as few taxes as you are required to pay. (laughs) But I also encourage you to fill out those papers with integrity. Samuel displays for us what godliness looks like. Be faithful in all your dealings. He was also faithful in parenting. Now, this is a huge deal. Consider what Samuel is doing here. Do you remember, think back to when he was a little boy Think back to when he was being raised in the house of Eli. His first prophecy that he ever gave, that first time the Lord appeared to him and said, Samuel, Samuel, and gave him a word to tell the people. Do you remember what it was? He was to go to Eli first and then to the nation and to declare Eli and his house will fall. Why? Because Eli, did not discipline or remove or rebuke his sons because of their sins. He didn't stop them from ministry. Now, just a couple of chapters ago, back in chapter 8, when the people approached Samuel and said, Hey, look, we don't trust your sons. We think that they're evil. It appeared that Samuel was in danger of going down the same exact route as Eli to be permissive with his sons. He had two sons that were very wicked leaders. They were so bad That, in contrast, Saul looked like a good solution. Well, unlike Eli, Samuel fired his sons. He listened to the word of the Lord, and he anointed Saul, even though it meant that his sons were on the outs. That's what Samuel is getting at in this verse when he says, Look, my sons are with you. They're not leading. They're not your authority. They're commoners now. But I want you to notice something really important about that. We are told that both of Samuel's sons, Joel and Abijah, were wicked men. But that's not true of all of Samuel's descendants. If you jump forward a little bit in the Bible to 1 Chronicles chapter 6... We read about how David appointed men to lead various forms of worship at the tabernacle in Jerusalem. You remember when the Ark of the Covenant came in and the people celebrated and rejoiced and worship was renewed in the nation and all of a the sudden they had to put together all of these processes and all of these groups of people who would manage the house of the Lord that had not been in operation for years as they prepared for the temple to eventually be built in that spot. They needed people to serve. 1 Chronicles chapter 6, 31-33 says... These are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they performed their service according to their order. These are the men who served and their sons. Now, who is the very first person listed? Of the sons of the Kohathites, Heman, the singer of... Uh, The singer, the son of Joel, son of Samuel. Samuel's grandson, and yes, his name is Heman, not to be confused with the cartoon character. Samuel's grandson, Heman, literally became the number one worship leader in the entire nation of Israel. Now track with me down this path just a little bit. Heman becomes the author of music. During the time of David. He leads the people in singing, but he also writes a lot of songs. We see his name listed, for example, at the beginning of Psalm eighty eight. The intro to that psalm simply says, A song, a psalm of the song, Sons of Korah, to the choir master, according to Mahalath Leonoth, a maskil of who? Heman the Ezrahite. Same guy. And without going through the entire genealogy, First Chronicles chapter 6 shows us that Samuel was of the line of Korah. He's the one who was famous for rebelling against Moses. And the earth opened up and ate them, my daughter's favorite story in the Bible. A lot of people died, but Korah's sons did not die. And their sons eventually produced Samuel, who eventually produced Heman. And now Heman is in the line of Korah. And like any good musician, Heman started a band, and he gave it a name. The hardest thing about starting a band is finding the right name. And he finds the right name. He calls them the sons of Korah. Now, perhaps you're familiar with that band because they wrote 11 of the psalms in your Bible. If you have ever sung, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Heman wrote that song. If you have ever sung... As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after you. Then you have sung his music. If you have ever sung any variation of God is our refuge and strength, our very present help in time of trouble, then you have sung his music. Now I realize that this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but I've pursued it for this reason. Parents, it can be really discouraging when your children are not walking with the Lord. That's true when they are young, It's true when they are adults, and I am sure that that was discouraging for Samuel, but you cannot convince me that Samuel had nothing to do with the spiritual formation of his grandson. Heman, he served the Lord faithfully. Where did he learn that? Obviously not from his dad. Parents, continue to preach the truth to your unsaved older children. And grandparents, I don't address you very often. I know many of you have spoken to me about regrets that you have. Maybe you were saved later in life and you didn't have the chance to share the gospel with your own children. Maybe you didn't always lead a good example for your kids. But look, you are still here. And you have opportunity now to make an impact on future generations with the gospel. Samuel is a good example of what it looks like to put God first in his own life in a way that also produced repercussions in his grandchildren to such an extent that we are still worshiping from the songs of Samuel's house. Look at how that impacted his descendants for generations. We also see that Samuel was faithful in preaching. It would have been really easy for Samuel to just quietly retire here. The nation's celebrating. They just won a war. Everybody's happy. Saul is now the king officially. He could have just faded into the background. Or he could have done that really tropey political speech, replaying all of the greatest accomplishments of his tenure, But he doesn't do those things. No, instead, he leaves the people with a very sharp rebuke. We'll get into the meat of the message in a bit. But for now, I just want you to see that he doesn't hold back. I mean, he goes right for the throat. He is throwing haymakers. We can't hear the tone of his voice. But I can assure you that this was no laughing matter. His rebuke was so stern that the people were terrified. Look at verse 19 again. It says, And all the people said to Samuel... Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. His sermon was so powerful and such a harsh rebuke they thought God was going to literally kill them all. A good preacher will rebuke the flock of God when it's necessary. And I can promise you that is not a comfortable position to be in. But Samuel doesn't take the path of least resistance. He honors the Lord and he preaches God's word because Samuel was a faithful man and he was faithful in preaching. Samuel was also faithful in praying. Have you ever warned anybody and said, hey, look, don't do that. It's going to hurt you. And then they still did it. They disregard everything that you say and they end up getting themselves into a lot of hot water. And didn't everything within you crave To say the words, I told you so. Like you just want to say, look, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it, but I want to say it. Samuel has the most gracious, I told you so, of all time. Samuel warned them, you don't want a king. (laughs) You don't want to do this to yourselves. But they didn't listen. And he warned them again with a list of reasons why you don't want a king. And they still didn't listen. But instead of respond, was simply said in verse 22, As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against my Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Even though Samuel was no longer their national leader, he was committed to praying for the people. In fact, he went so far to say that it would be sinning against God if he stopped praying for them. Now, I confess, there's a lot of people that I do not pray for with the kind of fervor and tenacity that I should. When I see people constantly walking in a way that is offensive to the Lord, what should that do to me? That should propel me to further prayer. But sometimes what that does is say, cause me to say in my heart, they don't really even care that I'm praying for them. They just don't listen to me no matter what I say. Why would I bother praying for them? Now, I have never said those words out loud, but I guarantee those words have been processed in my mind. Sometimes, instead of being propelled into prayer, very consistently sinful people have the opposite effect on me. Let me ask, what is your prayer life like? Specifically, what is it like for people who reject the words you say to them? Do you pray for people who don't listen to you Samuel didn't flaunt the fact that he was right. He just humbly acknowledged that he would continue to pray for them. Most of you in this room have unsaved family members. Uh, Most of us do. Um, Most of the time, those family members will not listen to anything you have to say about the gospel. That might not always be true, but it's generally true. But when something falls apart in their life, when something goes wrong, When they get that bill or when they get that report from the hospital or the doctor, that's when they call you. And they say, will you pray for me? Be there. Be on top of that. Tell them, yes, I will pray for you. Pray for them in the moment and then continue to pray for them. Samuel was a good and faithful leader. He was faithful for the people by continually praying for them, even though they didn't listen to him. But now we're going to shift to the second angle through which we're going to examine this chapter, which is Israel's unfaithfulness. Now, we're going to look at this in two ways. First, that they were unfaithful in reliance, and secondly, that they were unfaithful in remembering. But these two things are so completely intertwined that we're actually going to cover them at the same time. Samuel's rebuke comes in the form of a history lesson. Notice how it begins in verse 6. He says, "...the Lord is witness." who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt, now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. Look, Moses was the guy. He was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He is like the chief authority for the people. He's the one who everyone looked up to. And notice what Samuel does in this introduction to his history lesson. He reminds the people that it wasn't actually Moses who did anything. Samuel makes it clear that it was the Lord who performed all of these righteous deeds of Israel's past. The plagues, the Red Sea, the water from the rock, that wasn't Moses. That was God. The law, the Ark of the Covenant, the sacrifices, the promised land, none of that originated from Moses. That was from God. Look at verse 6 again and see the very important word there, that the Lord appointed, he appointed Moses. Moses was on the backside of a hill in the middle of nowhere when God showed up in a burning bush and said, I am going to send you to Pharaoh. Samuel is going to build his case by pointing to the fact, look, don't you remember, God went and commissioned Moses. When God wanted a leader, he found one and he appointed one. God appointed Moses. But the people had forgotten, and the people had failed to rely on God to appoint for them a leader now. So Samuel continues by going even further into the past. As I read the next several verses, notice two things. Listen to how the people are rebuked for both forgetting, and look how they are also rebuked for not relying on the Lord. Verse 8, when Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord did what? He sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But what did they do? But they forgot the Lord. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hatsor and the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord. And have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. They got a lot of things wrong, but they got one thing right. When everything fell apart, when the armies started coming in, what did they do? During this time, he, he mentions here three different attacks that occurred over a century. These were not all simultaneous, they were spread apart. And he said, What did they do? They every time called out to the Lord for deliverance. And what happens? Verse 11, and the Lord sent Jerubbaal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. Look, when they were in trouble, what did they do? They called out to God. They remembered him, and they began to rely on him, and he sent their deliverer. Now, the history lesson is over, and Samuel is no longer going to speak about their parents or their grandparents. He's now going to direct everything right at the people in front of him, explaining the recent military conflict from God's vantage point. Verse 12 And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. And here's the punchline. Here's the kicker. Here's the punch to the throat. When the Lord your God was your king. The point that Samuel is making was crystal clear. The people should have done what they had always done in generations past. They should have called out to the Lord. They should have remembered him. They should have relied on him. Instead, they said, no, we're not going to do that anymore. We want an earthly deliverer that we will choose for ourselves. Verse 13 And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord set a king over you. Now, remember, Saul is in this group of people. They have just won a major battle. He is at the height of his popularity. And it appears to me, like just as somebody who often speaks in public, if I were in this situation, You can't really say this without looking at the guy you're talking about. He's probably pointing directly at Saul. This must have been super awkward. He says, behold the king whom you have chosen. The people were all gathered together to rejoice and celebrate this king. And now Samuel is standing there presumably pointing at him saying, do you see how embarrassing this is for you? You had God as your king and you substituted God for him. For that guy. Think about what Samuel is saying. God chose Moses and he chose Aaron and he chose the judges and he even chose me, Samuel. Who did you choose? You chose Saul. Why did Israel sin in this way? Because they did not rely on the Lord and because they did not remember his power or his promises or his pattern of help in the past. All they were looking at was what was right in front of them. They were making decisions rooted in the heat of the emotional moment. Yes, they were legitimately in a tough spot. Nahash the serpent king was a bad guy, breathing down their necks. But God never abandoned them, and sin never fixes any problems. Brothers and sisters, there is never going to be a time. You are never going to be so cornered or so stuck that your best course of action to help you in your situation will include sin in the equation. If you feel like you were stuck and there is no way out, do exactly what the Israelites were supposed to do and say, God, I am trapped. There's nothing that I can do. I need your help. Run to the Lord. Or as Heman, Samuel's grandson, would later say, he is a very present help in times of trouble. Samuel immediately shifts to telling them exactly what they need to do moving forward. Look, You can't undo the fact that you have a king now. He's your king. You've got a kingdom. Congratulations. You got what you wanted. But now you're stuck with these consequences, but you have a kingdom that you need to live in. There are stipulations for that kingdom. Verse 14, If you just fear the Lord, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who rules over you will follow the Lord your God, It will be well. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, this is not a new idea. This is actually very similar to the warning that Moses gave right before he died, and more extensively, the one that Joshua gave in his farewell when he was about to die. If you remember back to the end of Joshua chapter 24, he tells the people that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he calls on them to put away their idols. And he calls on them to follow the Lord faithfully. And if you remember that chapter, they say, we will do it. And they committed themselves to it. And he says, you won't do it. I'm not going to go through the entire chapter. But essentially, the entirety of his message is, I don't believe you. You're not actually going to honor this commitment that you're making before me right now. And you turn your, your, in your Bible to the very next page, and you get to Judges chapter two, and guess what? It said, there arose a generation who did not know what the Lord their God had done for them or their fathers, and who did not walk in his ways. It takes one generation, and the entire nation is already turned away. Now Samuel is repeating that very same kind of address, and he's telling them, look, you must not Give up on this thing that you have committed yourself to. You must honor the Lord. You must follow him in covenant faithfulness. Listen, they're not going to do it. They're going to ask Samuel to pray for them, but then they're going to fail again and again and again. We're going to see it here in the book of 1 Samuel. The unfaithfulness of Israel is once again going to be put on display, which brings us to our final point of the morning, which is God's faithfulness. I want you to see God's faithfulness in three specific ways here in this passage. First, notice that he is faithful to forewarn. We've already seen these warnings in Samuel's first rebuke. He's going to reiterate those warnings at the end of the chapter. Look, if you don't follow what I am telling you right now, God's hand is going to be against you. That is a powerful declaration because that's exactly what God had said to the nation of Egypt when the people were in slavery. God's hand was against them. Look how it turned out for Pharaoh and for his armies. Samuel is going to reiterate these warnings at the end of the chapter, but God doesn't just verbally warn them. He also gives them a sign that these words will truly uh, come to pass and that these words do originate from him. Verse 16 says, Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Have you been here for any length of time? You know I grew up in Kansas, because I tell you all the time. Well, in Kansas, um, that place is known for having some of the most finicky weather patterns in the entire world. It's wild how sporadic the weather is. Sometimes it's nice and wonderful and warm and beautiful in the morning, and then by the afternoon there's a tornado that has ripped through the entire countryside. That's what I grew up with, and that's what I had always known. And then when I was 19 and had moved to Brazil as a missionary, I was at one time in a car with a friend of mine in southern Brazil, and I saw that the sky was really getting dark, and it was getting overcast. And I asked my Brazilian friend, Hey, you know, those, <laughs> those clouds are looking pretty nasty. you Do you think it's going you know, to rain? And he doesn't even look up. He's just driving, you know, eyes on the road. No, 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 it's not going to rain. And I just looked at him, and I'm skeptical, and I'm critical. And I just said, how in the world do you know that? And he said, it isn't the rainy season here. And you know what? He was right. To me, it looked like it was going to rain. But he knew, it's not rainy season, it's not going to rain. And he was right. Most of the land in Israel had a very predictable weather pattern. Harvest season is not part of the rainy season. It was shocking to them that this thunderstorm developed out of thin air. Now, although that would not surprise anyone from Kansas, it probably wouldn't surprise anybody from New York, it was enough to prove to them that God was the one bringing the message through Samuel. Notice that the people did not just fear the Lord, but they also once again looked to Samuel and they feared him. Who can do these things? But this was not a way for God to show anger against the people. Consider that fact. These people just sinned against Him and replaced the Lord as their king, as God Himself said. But this was a loving warning to the people. It is a kind God that tells you exactly what He expects from you. He told them exactly what was necessary to keep the kingdom going. And it's really simple. He just says, obey the voice of the Lord and follow the Lord your God. Those are the two commands. God was faithful to forewarn them, and God has been faithful to forewarn us. Look, there's a lot of things that the Scripture teaches about what happens when you die. Every one of us will one day die. Every single one of us in this room will one day stop breathing, our hearts will stop beating, and we are going to spend eternity somewhere. And the scripture teaches us that every one of us is deserving of eternal wrath under the hand of God in hell forever. And there is a warning that is explicit that you will be there, you will go there, you will have no escape, uh, hope of ever escaping there unless you bow the knee to Jesus Christ and repent and believe in him. God has not been shy about warning us. He has told us exactly what we are called to do. God was also faithful to forgive. I want you to see that God immediately seems to forgive them for asking for a king. As soon as they ask Samuel to pray for them, this entire conflict seems to be over. God is not asking them, God is not holding this over their head He's not continuing to rub their nose in it. God was faithful to forgive them. But I want you to also look forward because do you see the warnings that he's given? You must continue on in this way. You must follow in these truths. You must obey the voice of the Lord, and your king must do the same. Well, guess what? Saul's not going to do that. He's going to fail, and the kingdom is going to be ripped away from him. But you know who else doesn't do that? David doesn't do that. David turned away from the Lord also. David pursued his own interests. David sinned immensely. Nobody can look at what happens in that entire scenario with Bathsheba or any of the surrounding chapters and say, those things were done in accordance with the will of God. Well, what's the difference between Saul and David? As we're going to explore extensively through the rest of this book, the chief difference between these two men is true repentance. David asks for forgiveness, and he does so out of a heart of true repentance. And what happens? God forgives him. If God just ripped the kingdom away as soon as David sinned, it would have been over in an instant. But God is faithful to forgive. Sometimes people consider the God of the Old Testament to be this angry, aggressive, avenging, agitated, aggravated God They see him as a cruel and vengeful being. But the God of the New Testament is the exact same God as the Old Testament. He is gracious and he is merciful. He describes himself as being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He forgave Israel in this chapter. And he's going to do it again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. He will forgive every king that asks for forgiveness with a heart of repentance. Every one of them and he will forgive you. Okay, if you're an unbeliever and you're here, you've heard the gospel from various angles already this morning, starting with the Lord's Supper and continuing on, weaving it into the midst of this sermon. But I want to make sure you understand explicitly what I am saying. You are a sinner that needs forgiveness. Your sins cannot be covered by anything that you do. You cannot do any works. You cannot do any philanthropy. You cannot do any religious activities that will convince God that you are clean enough to enter into heaven. You are defiled before God, but there is forgiveness available in Jesus Christ. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you can only receive forgiveness in one way, and that is by simply acknowledging You are a desperate sinner, just like the Israelites do in this chapter. They say, look, we've added this to our many sins that we asked for another king. You did the same thing. You asked for another ruler of your life, probably yourself. Acknowledge that you have not honored the Lord in all of your dealings, that you have done your own thing. You have gone your own way. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. That was you. That is you. But if you were an unbeliever, you can follow Jesus Christ if you will simply acknowledge your sin and see that the blood of Jesus Christ is able to cover that sin and that he is able to forgive you from all your unrighteousness. Trust in him, follow him, repent of your sin, and you will be saved. And believer, if you are caught in any sin, this is good news for you too. The gospel is not just for those who are unbelievers. It is for you every day. Don't wait to run to Jesus. Don't delay. Go to him. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because God is faithful to forgive. One final word before leaving this chapter behind. God is also faithful to fulfill. Look again at verse 22. It says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Look, it's important for us to remember that The people of 1 Samuel were living under the Old Covenant. That was limited to those people, the people of Israel. But we live under the New Covenant inaugurated by the blood of Jesus. He did not just come to abolish the law. No, he came to fulfill it. He fulfilled the requirements of the old covenant law, and in doing so, he was able to establish the new covenant ratified by the sacrifice of himself on the cross. Jesus died and he rose again so that the kingdom would expand, that it would expand beyond the nation of Israel. There are no more limitations on the covenant based on borders or boundaries or bloodlines. If you are in Christ, you are living under what the book of Hebrews calls a new and better covenant. And if you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, then this precious promise holds true in an even greater way for you than it did for the people under the old covenant. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. If you are in Christ, he will never leave you or forsake you. He promised that. Matthew 28 He will get all of the glory for all of eternity for redeeming sinners like us. You are a trophy of grace. You are evidence that God is merciful and kind. He does this for his own namesake. So that everyone for all of eternity will see that guy is here. Not because he deserves it, but because God is kind and gracious. God delighted in washing away your sin. He delighted in in adopting you into his family And part of the reason behind that is so that for all of eternity, we will see God is good. God is faithful. He is faithful to forewarn and faithful to forgive and faithful to fulfill every one of his promises. Let's pray. Our God, we ask that you please, by your grace, help us to understand the good news that is here in this chapter, that we might love you, that we might see your faithfulness, your faithfulness To forgive us and to fulfill every promise that you have made to us. Lord, we pray that we would never by any means forget like the Israelites did, that we would always rely on you, that we would always remember what you have done at the cross. Lord, I pray that in doing so it would cause us to be like Samuel, faithful in all of our dealings. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.